A woman was caught in adultery. The teachers of the law and Pharisees took this woman and brought her and made her stand before the crowds, brought her before Jesus to see what he would do, to trap him. How did they want to trap him? Well, according to Old Testament law, those who committed the sin of adultery, especially those who are betrothed, who are in their engagement period, and, and virgins, those who are uh, guilty of the sin of adultery, could be punished by death. Death was the punishment for that crime. However, capital punishment wasn't something that Israel was free to give out whenever they wanted under the thumb of Rome. Only under special and extreme circumstances were they allowed to exercise that portion of the law. Capital punishment, uh, it wasn't granted to them very often, and if they carried that out, it might get them in trouble with their Roman overlords. So the teachers want to see, which will Jesus do? What will he do with this person who's obviously guilty? Everybody knew she was guilty. If he let her off the hook, then you could say that Jesus did not follow the Old Testament law. He's not worth following as a teacher. He brushes aside the law of Moses. If Jesus called for justice on her, then it might give him trouble with the Roman overlords and cause unrest, and it might not go with his overall message of love and compassion for the sinner. So what is Jesus going to do? And we know what Jesus does, don't we? First, we know he, he writes in the dirt, and none of us know what he wrote. Lots of speculation, but we don't know what he was writing. We're not told. But we know the famous words, don't we? He who is without sin may cast the first stone. There is an assumption that anyone who was executing justice was free and not guilty of the sin that was being punished. So anybody who is going to take part in that justice would have to be free of that sin as well. They weren't participants in the crime. Jesus turns the tables on these people and asks them to consider their own innocence, their own potential hypocrisy. Under the law, it was expected that those who were witnesses of the crime would be the ones to cast the first stone. We know the story. We know what happens. They all turn away, which leaves just the woman and Jesus Jesus, the only one who is truly innocent, the only one who would have any right to fully execute justice, and he doesn't. He says, does anybody condemn you? No, and I, neither do I. He doesn't condone her sin. He tells her, you may go, sin no more. It's a compelling story of Jesus' compassion towards the sinner, his conviction, and towards those who may be hypocrites. There's something that's always bugged me about this story, though. It's just a little thing. And, and it's, does Jesus teach the principle that in order to execute justice, you have to be fully 
sin-free. Because if that's the principle, it's going to be really hard to do, execute any kind of justice. Who's going to get a speeding ticket? If the one who issues the ticket has to be free of all sin themselves. So the, the story brings up a, a wrestling for me, a tension for me, with how is justice executed as Jesus puts it forth. But then I realized, as I was studying through this, that there's somebody missing from the story. If you read the text carefully, there, there's a person who is um, loudly absent. Do you know who it is? The man. Because what does the law say? The man and the woman who are guilty of adultery who come under justice. It's pretty loud silence. They didn't bring the man there. They just brought the woman in. It shows you what their heart was. They weren't there to find justice. They were there to trick Jesus, and they were using this woman as a tool for their own sinful schemes, and Jesus sees right through it and turns the tables on them. This wasn't justice. It was... A mockery. And Jesus, in his own way, is able to expose that, expose their hearts. It's a wonderful story of who Jesus is, and it may or may not be true. Uh, you'll read your Bibles, you'll notice that there's a note there. We don't have the very original copies of Scripture. We don't have John's letter as he wrote it. We have a ton of copies of John's letter, which verify what he wrote, but we don't have the original. And if we look at our earliest copies, the best copies of John's gospel, this story actually isn't in it. In fact, there are other copies of scripture where uh, this story is placed in other places in John. Sometimes it's placed at the end of Luke. So what it tells us is that this was not part of John's original writing. It wasn't part of John's original gospel. It wasn't really part of scripture, actually. It's probably, likely, a true story, something that really happened, but was later inserted by people who copied the Bible. So we might not treat it as the same level of scripture and same authority of scripture, but it's there and it's helpful. And I think what it does is it actually introduces us to a theme that we're going to see in the rest of John 8. As Jesus is in conflict with the teachers and the people, what Jesus does is he convicts complacent people while offering salvation to the sinner. And he's going to do that the rest of this dialogue that's in John 8. I'll summarize what's going on in John 8 this way. Jesus has divine authority to convict the complacent and save the sinner. Jesus has divine authority to convict the complacent and save the sinner. To those who are very secure in their place with God and they know that they don't need that God is on their side and they're very complacent and smug and who they are, like these leaders were, Jesus brings conviction and he challenges. And at the same time, offering salvation to all those who know they are sinners. We'll see that as we go along. This is, this is a text of confrontation. As Jesus teaches about who he is, He's going to further and further clarify, this is who I am. And as he does so, he's going to invite further conflict. As he gets more specific about who he is, there's going to be more pushback, more conflict with what he says. And we'll see that as this goes along. There's a lot of verses here. There's a lot of dialogue. What I want to do is just point out five things that Jesus teaches about himself. Uh, five truths, five affirmations that Jesus makes about himself that bring that conflict. And all along the way, we'll see that 
He has divine authority to convict the complacent and save the sinner. So let's look at I'm going to break this passage down starting with verse 12 to the end of 59 and highlight five truths that Jesus teaches that incite conflict in this debate. The first truth that Jesus teaches in verses 12 through 20, I would sum up this way. Jesus is the God-sent light. Jesus is the God-sent light. He is the one that God has sent over and over throughout this whole chapter. This is a theme. He's going to say, I am the one who speaks on behalf of God. I am the one sent by God. Jesus is going to claim to be the one from God. And one of the characteristics is the one sent from God is that he is the light. Jesus is the God-sent light. Look at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. If you were here last week, if you listen, you remember that this whole dialogue, this whole scene takes place in Jerusalem at the temple during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, where the Jewish people would celebrate their wandering in the wilderness, how God had provided for them. They'd set up temporary shelters, and it was a week-long festival. We talked about the water-pouring ceremony last week. There was another ceremony that went on during the Feast of Booths. It was called the candle-lighting ceremony. It was well attested in ancient documents that each night in the temple court, they would light four giant golden candles and it would light up the sky. And as they lit those four golden giant candles, they would also have their own torches and they would each pass around the light so there would be a, a celebration that went into the night of rejoicing and praising God who sheds light. It was reported that you could see the glow all around Jerusalem from the light in the temple. And in that context, Jesus now says, I am the light of the world. That theme will be picked up a lot next chapter. He doesn't actually get into that theme a whole lot of being the light. But it is important just to think about what is that? What is the light? What does that mean? All throughout the Old Testament, it had been promised that God would give light to the nations, light to the Gentiles. Psalm 119 tells us God's word is light. A light that shines and lights our path. There's a lot of verses about the light and how God will give light and be light and guidance and life. 
Maybe one important one, I'll just read it for you, you don't have to turn there. Zechariah 14, 6 through 8, a prophecy about the coming of God in the day of the Lord. In Zechariah 14, 6 through 8 says this, listen. On that day, that day of the Lord, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Light and living water. Does that sound familiar? Jesus says, I am the light. Others are going to push back on him. You can't say that. You need verification. Who's your witness? Uh, this Last week at our staff meeting, we were having a conversation about our Google Maps reviews. Very important stuff. Uh, we are noticing you can find us on Google Maps, and there are people who write reviews of the church there, so feel free. We won't tell you what to write or how to review. You have Christian liberty to do that. Um, but we were joking around about how we should all write reviews as staff. And, of course, the joke is the staff is going to give you very trustworthy reviews. The pastor is going to give you a very trustworthy review of his own church, just like a business owner is going to give you a very trustworthy review of their own establishment. Five stars, no questions. There's, there's a joke, and you can't verify yourself. Somebody else will do that for you. Jesus, you can't just go and say things and verify yourself. And, of course, Jesus says, well, first, what I'm saying is true. And even if I was verifying myself, which I kind of am, what I'm saying is true and I judge truly, but also I'm not the only one speaking on my behalf. The Father speaks on my behalf and has spoken all throughout the Old Testament, and all that he says speaks of me. Jesus is telling them, the Father is my witness, God is my witness, what I'm saying is true. He is the light, everything he says is worth trusting. In a world full of darkness and lies, where do we find truth? It's hard to find online. We're in an age where we don't trust much of what we hear. We have Jesus telling us, I am the light, the truth you can trust. He reveals who God is to us. Jesus is the God-sent light. And second, Jesus is the God-sent Savior. He's the Savior sent by God, the God-sent Savior. Verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin." Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many believed in him. Jesus says, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. What he's telling them is he's going to die 
be buried, resurrect, ascend. He will depart and return to heaven. He was only there for a short time. And you will look for me and die in your sins. What he means by that is not that they're going to keep looking for Jesus. What he means by that is you're going to keep looking for a savior and you're not going to find another. You're going to keep looking for a Messiah. You're going to keep wondering, when is God going to send the one to save us? And he already has and he's already ascended. And as you keep looking, unless you believe in the one God sent, you will die in your sins. You will die continuing to look for a savior. Unless you believe that I am he. It's a weird way of saying that, isn't it? I am he. Kind of stands out. You would anticipate him saying, I am him. But he says, I am he. Very intentionally. If you read through your Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 40 to 55, those chapters, there are a ton of I am statements of the Lord where the Lord says, I am. I am this. I am this. I am the Lord. And there's one in particular. I'm just going to read it for you. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. Isaiah 43, 10, 11. Where the Lord says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Jesus is using this I am language, I am he, to communicate, I am the Savior God sent. Apart from me, there is no other. I am he. Until you understand this, you will die in your sins. God has not sent multiple saviors. This is an aside. Uh, recently online, there have been uh, conversations about the extent of the flood. Was the flood a local flood? Restricted that area. Was it a global flood? And... Uh, I won't get into that. But what nobody debates is how many boats were there. Uh, you've heard the phrase, don't miss the boat. It just strikes me that in the flood, God did not send multiple, multiple, multiple arcs. He sent one. On the ark was salvation. Off the ark was judgment. God has sent one Savior. He has not sent multiple. There is one. And Jesus says, I am he. And unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. There is no other one who has died on the cross for the sins of the world. There is no other one who has paid for the penalty for sins. Who satisfied the judgment of God. There is no other. There is only one, Jesus Christ. And either you believe in him that he is your savior, that he has taken your sins so you are no longer judged or you bear the penalty for your sins. That is it. And she says, you'll see I'm doing God's work when I'm lifted up. Then you will see I do what my father says. I am the savior, the one who's sent to the cross, who obeys the father to the end. Jesus is the God-sent Savior. And then verses 31 through 38, Jesus is the God-sent Liberator. 
Jesus is the God-sent liberator, the one who saves them from their captivity. Look at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Verse 30 tells us that when Jesus said he was the Savior, he taught that he was one God sent, many started to believe in him. They were believing what he says. And Jesus says, if you're really going to be my disciples, you're truly going to follow me, must believe all that I say. And if you believe what I say, if you believe the truth, you will be set free. And that sets them off, doesn't it? They take offense to this offer of liberty. The offer of liberation offends them. Why? One of the more beautifully ironic sayings, we're Abraham's descendants. We're not slaves to anyone. And of course, if you know the history, that's pretty much how they spent their entire history as enslaved, whether it be Egypt, Babylon, now under the Roman oppressors. It seems like they were never really free. And of course, the argument that they're making, they know that, they know their history, but their argument that they're making is we are God's people, we are children of Abraham, and we have no other God, we are monotheists, we are God's people, so we are enslaved to no other God. We are spiritually free people, no matter what may happen to us physically, no matter where we may be sent or uh, spread out or dispersed, we are God's people. We are the ones who worship God, and therefore we are free spiritually. That's what they're saying. How can you say we need to be set free? We are free. We're God's people. I won't necessarily recommend the movie, but some of you may have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Where am I going with this? Uh, there's an infamous scene of a fearsome black knight who challenges the hero. And you know the, the ludicrous scene where he battles him. And you can't pass unless you fight me. And then he proceeds to get all of his limbs chopped off. Right? Chop off arm, arm, leg, leg. And he keeps fighting. And, and the famous lines are, it's just a flesh wound. It's a scratch. <coughs> In total denial, the joke is, of course, about the horrible condition he's in, which is what the Jews were. We're not in captivity. We're not enslaved. It's just a flesh with its scratch. We don't need help. And Jesus comes and says, yes, you do. Anyone who sins is enslaved to sin. Are you perfect? Have you sinned? Anyone who has rebelled against God is enslaved to sin. You are under the presence of sin. It continues to be in your life no matter what you do. You're under the power of sin. You can't stop sinning, no matter how hard you try. 
and you're under the penalty of sin. You'll be judged by God for it. So you, on your own, how are you going to be free from the presence, the power, the penalty of sin? Jesus says, I am the way. He is the one who has taken on sin and provided liberation, freedom for them, if they would accept it. He's pointing out that he is their savior. They don't accept it, so Jesus says, you're acting just like your father. And he is setting up the next round of disputes. Go to verses 39 through 47. Jesus is the God-sent liberator who provides freedom from enslavement to sin. And now, Jesus will make the argument he is the God-sent differentiator. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Jesus is the God-sent differentiator. Verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. What is a differentiator? A differentiator is anything that divides, that makes a distinction that distinguishes between one thing and another. So in biology, a Y chromosome is a differentiator. Anyone who possesses that Y chromosome is a male. It makes, differentiates between male and female, the presence of a Y chromosome. The years 1996 and 1997 differentiate between millennials and Gen Z. It's a dividing line between two. Three points is a differentiator between a touchdown and a field goal and Super Bowl champions and losers. It divides. The people that Jesus is arguing with, in their minds, what divides between the children of God and not the children of God? What makes you a child of God and not a child of God? For them... We are Abraham's descendants. We are the offspring of Abraham. We are the ones who come from him, and we have the divine promise, the the promise of a kingdom and a nation and blessing through Abraham's seed. Abraham is our father, and that makes us children of God. And then Jesus comes and questions their parentage. They take issue. We're not illegitimate children, which is probably a shot at Jesus. Some may have known that 
Joseph wasn't his biological dad. There were rumors maybe that he was a son of a Samaritan. That's why he was so friendly with them. So this might be a shot at Jesus' own parentage. Who's your father? Jesus. But he accuses them of being children, very bluntly, of the devil. Your father is the devil, the father of lies, the father of untruth and murder from the beginning, referring back to the garden. The one who introduced lies into the world, introduced murder and hatred into the world through rejection of God, not believing the promises of God. That is the devil's work, is to bring untruth and death. And the greatest, most murderous lie is denying that Jesus is the Messiah God sent and Son of God. And Jesus says, Anyone who does not believe in me doesn't accept that I am of God and does not follow me. Whoever believes in me, they are children of God. Whoever does not believe in me, they're sons of the devil. He is the dividing line, the differentiator. Not ethnic background, not culture, not the family you were born into, not the church you grew up in, not your, uh, some vague religious commitment. This is the dividing line differentiator. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and all that he says? Do you have him as your Lord? They did not, and so Jesus is very clear about who their father is. Jesus is the God-sent differentiator. And lastly, verses 48 through 59 Jesus is the God-sent God. That's how this all culminates. In a very blunt statement about who Jesus is, that he is God himself. Follow the, the dialogue of verses 48 through 59 with me. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Just kind of funny how those go together in their minds, isn't it? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus has been pushing their buttons, so they attack him. You're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Jesus says, you dishonor me. My Father honors me. And whoever obeys me will never see death. 
they take that claim literally thinking about physical death. Jesus, of course, what he means is whoever obeys him and sees him, they might die physically, but they will never die spiritually, and they'll have resurrection in the end, the eternal life. They don't understand what Jesus is saying at all. They say, well, what do you mean? Like, you can make people live forever. None of our prophets have been able to do that. Ted Williams is cryo-frozen, you know, that maybe we'll be able to unfreeze him someday, but we've never been able to solve this problem of physical death. It's the unsolvable human problem. No prophet has ever been able to grant eternal life, not even Abraham. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? And they say, who do you think you are? Which is maybe a better way of translating it is, who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you saying you are? Jesus says, I'm not making myself out to be anybody. It's the Father who glorifies me. The Father who speaks to me. And you ask if I'm greater than Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. I am what Abraham was looking forward to, the promises of life and kingdom and blessing all fulfilled in me. And they still don't understand what Jesus is saying. What do you, Abraham rejoiced to see you? Like, were you alive when Abraham was alive? You're not even 50. How can you be that old that Abraham saw you? So here's the question on the table. How old is Jesus? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And on the surface, Jesus is saying something very plain but incredible. I was alive before Abraham was. That's an astounding claim. That's an incredible claim. Abraham's thousands of years old, and Jesus is saying, I, before Abraham was born, I'm alive. I, like, I'm older than Abraham. Except that's not all that Jesus is saying, is it? Jesus isn't just saying, I'm old. Jesus is saying, I'm eternal. Jesus is not saying he is old. He's saying he is God. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, that means something. Again, it's a weird way of saying it. You would expect Jesus to say, before Abraham was, I was. That's the way you would say, I'm older than Abraham. Before Abraham was, I was. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus very specifically uses the Greek words, ego, a me. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And then we go back to those passages in Isaiah 40 through 55, all the places where God says, I am. And of course, going back to, you know where, for those of you who study your Bible, you know the calling of Moses, and Moses asks God, what is your name? And God says, I am. I am the one who exists, the self-existent one. I am who I am. The, the one who has no beginning and has no end. The I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, he means I am God. I'm not just old. I always was. I am the living God. There is no clear way you could say, I'm God. So somebody asks, did Jesus ever claim to be God? Yes, he does. And you know that's how it was interpreted and how it was received, right? Because what do they do? The stones they weren't going to throw at the woman, they're going to throw at Jesus. Because they understand his claim. That is a claim, of, a blasphemous claim. I am God. Punishable by death if it weren't true. Jesus makes repeated amplifying claims about himself. I am the light. I am the savior, I am the liberator, I am the dividing line, the differentiator, and I am the God sent by God for you. 
There's another way you could kind of summarize what Jesus says about himself here. Jesus claims he is sent from God. Jesus claims he is the only way to God. And Jesus claims he is God. And just for a moment, think about that. Is Jesus just a really good teacher? I think that's the common view of Jesus in our world and our culture. Good teacher, maybe did some miraculous stuff, but that's all he really claims to be and it's all we should see him as. But you'll see here, Jesus doesn't leave that option. He makes radical, life-changing claims about himself. The kind of claims that get a person killed. You don't crucify people just because they went around and did some nice things, taught some nice things. Jesus taught to get himself killed. He spoke radically about who he was, even claiming to be God himself. He made big enough claims about himself that we have to deal with them. That if we're going to make an honest investigation into what Christianity is or who Jesus was, we have to deal with these claims that he claimed to be sent by God, be the only way to God, and claimed he was God. So if there's ever a day where you're taking people through John and saying, let's read this together. I would invite you to invite them. Well, who does Jesus claim to be? If he's right, what does that mean? Jesus makes such big claims about himself that we have to orient our lives around them. We have to deal with them. And if Jesus is right, then it should change everything. And as we close, I just wanted to consider two things, two points of reflection, what Jesus is doing in this passage. First, and just very obviously, Jesus calls us to be saved in him. As he has this dialogue with the Jewish people there at the temple, he is calling people to be saved in him. He is the savior, he's the liberator. Come and be saved in me. That's the call that goes out. If you're a sinner, come and find salvation. Sin brings death and separation from God. Sin brings enslavement to evil. Jesus offers to be the savior from death and sin. It's far more important than their physical slavery, wasn't it? He doesn't necessarily come and free them from Rome. Jesus is, in his first coming, more interested in spiritual slavery than physical condition. What he's ultimately after is, are you spiritually enslaved? No matter your socio-political condition, are you spiritually enslaved? I can offer spiritual freedom and eternal life, and when the kingdom comes, you will then be free in every sense of the word. All the physical freedom, perfection of the world, that'll come later in the kingdom. Right now, the way you get there, be spiritually free in Jesus. He calls us to be saved in him. And lastly, Jesus calls us to believe in him. And I would add, even when it's difficult. Can I point you towards one more thing here? I just want you to see this. This is something I've never noticed really before, reading through this passage, read through this passage a bunch but there's a remarkable little thing in verses 30 and 31. So look at verses 30 and 31 with me. 
Look at verses 30 and 31 together. It says, Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Why is that remarkable? As this conversation goes on, and Jesus calls them sons of the devil, and as they pick up stones to throw him, who is Jesus talking to? Verses 30 and 31 tell you. To those who believed in him. I've always read this just assuming Jesus is talking to the most antagonistic people in the crowd. He's not. He's talking to the fish who are on the hook. He's talking to the people. Some have already left him. Some have already ceased to be his disciples. But at this point, in this argument that he's having, verse 30 through 31 on, the rest of chapter 8, Jesus is talking to those who initially said, yeah, I think I believe in you. Those who are believers in him, they're the ones who are sticking around and having this conversation with Jesus. Now, if we, the way we operate, if we had people on the line, if we could close a deal, we're not going to push them away, right? Don't, when somebody says yes, don't give them a reason to say no. We close the deal. If somebody says, yeah, I want to be a believer in Jesus, say, okay, cool, cool. Well, I don't want to say anything else that might offend you. We got you. That is not how Jesus operates. Here's Jesus' apologetic and evangelistic method. Let me make you so angry that you have to choose whether you're really going to believe me or really not going to believe me. Because Jesus doesn't want disciples who only believe a part. He doesn't want disciples who only believe a little bit about who he is. Jesus wants disciples who believe about everything that he says. If you're truly my disciples, you'll listen to it all and you'll believe it all. So Jesus, at the front end, is going to make them count the cost. If you're really with me, then be with me till the end. He doesn't stop at easy belief. Adia Carson puts it this way. I like the way he writes it. He is never interested in multiplying numbers of converts if they are not genuine believers. And therefore, he insists on forcing would-be disciples to count the cost. Jesus is going to press in further to force them to decide, do you really believe me? And for us, we have to ask, do we really believe him? Even when it's difficult. Even when what he says is hard to believe. Even when it seems like God is taking away instead of giving. Will we really believe? Even when the answer from the doctor is it's terminal, will we really believe? When everybody else turns away, when you're under pressure and under threat, will you believe all that Jesus has said? Because that's the kind of discipleship he calls for and insists on. And it's why I as a pastor, we as a church feel a burden to call you to real discipleship, to not hold any truth back. And we do this in our baptism classes, in membership, in discipleship, to bring the hard stuff to you to ask, are you going to believe Jesus all the way? He will convict the complacent. He will say challenging things, all the while offering salvation to sinners, and anybody who seeks him and comes to him truly will be free indeed. You pray with me.
But Father, we thank you for your word, the words of Jesus that uh, challenge us to, to ask whether we were really going to believe in him. And Lord, we thank you, as you've said already in your word through Jesus, that you do draw us to believe. That anybody who will come and can come, the Father must draw, and you do. And then everybody who, do, who does come and truly believes, you'll never turn away. We thank you for the life we give. We thank you for the life we have, not by our goodness or by our own understanding or by our background, but we have it by grace and by faith in Jesus Christ. And we praise you. Amen.